This podcast is created for farmers and powered by Pioneer Agronomy to bring you agronomic insights and proven solutions to fuel forward-thinking farming. Howdy, folks, and welcome to another edition of the Indiana Pioneer Agronomy Podcast. This is your host, Carl Jorn, uh, field agronomist for Northwest Indiana, visiting with my fellow co-hosts, Brian Schrader and Ben Jacobs. Morning, fellas. Morning. Morning, Carl. We are uh, recording this episode on November 19th. Uh, The idea is to have a little post-mortem discussion now that harvest is pretty well in the rearview mirror for most folks still a little standing corn out in my geography but we wanted to bring alongside a fellow field agronomist as our guest Lance Shepard this morning how are you Lance good thanks for having me you bet so Lance since uh, our audience has heard your voice uh, maybe just one or two other times uh, through updates and stuff throughout the growing season do you mind kind of giving everybody an idea of where it is you're located and a little bit of your uh your background? Yeah, sure. So um, I'm a field agronomist uh, for Pioneer in Northeast Indiana. Uh, basically cover uh, Indiana, uh, or excuse me, Michigan, Ohio state lines, all the way over to, to Route 31. And then uh, north and south, a little bit of, of Highway 24 to the south. Um, been with Pioneer for, for several years now. Um, background strong in, in, in fertility. Um, I guess I uh, went and did my undergrad at Northwest Missouri State University, followed uh, with a master's at uh, Oklahoma State, and then uh, ended at uh, Pioneer uh, in this position here in Northeast Indiana. Perfect. Well, the reason why we wanted to have Lance on today was that uh, his geography, like he said, that, that far northeast corner of the state definitely went through some challenges this year from an agronomic perspective. And while we wanted to debrief on the state as a whole, we thought that Lance could shed some light on, uh, you know, what, what some of those challenges were that uh, growers in his geography uh, all shared in. So, uh, Brian, Ben, Lance, anywhere that you guys want to start in particular? Let's, um, let's, start, at the, let's start at the beginning. Uh, I think is a good reminder to to circle back and and just think about the kind of year that we've had. Um, if we look if we look in southern Indiana, I can jump in first. the The first planting window we had, some folks started planting on April fourth, and that corn, although hardly any of it got replanted, it took twenty six days to come out of the ground. It's all freezing temperatures multiple times. Um, we had quite a bit of corn planted in April and rolling on into May. And then the middle of May, around May 15th, we had, we had a beating rain. Um, and basically everything that had been planted in the previous four or five days was replanted. So June, in June, we got very dry. Um, most of my area started showing up on the drought monitor. And you can see, you know, visual, visual signs of drought stress. And beginning of July, we had a little bit of heat, got into some rain. And then from August 4th to October 16th at my house, we had exactly zero inches of rainfall. So just as a recap to what the crop in Southern Indiana has been through from April through October, um, how did that, how did that deviate in in you guys' areas? I I think um, in in Northeast Indiana, a lot of that, that's held true as well. Um, You know, the, like you said, it took 20 days for that early, early corn to emerge. 
Um, we didn't get planted as early. Uh, obviously, we started probably around April 15th, be right there in the middle of April. Um, but it still took a long time to, to get, accumulate GDUs and get emergence. Um, the big thing that I think that was left out there for, for Northeast Indiana was, was the hard freeze that came on May 9th, um, which really affected stands out there. Um, and in my neck of the woods, we had 28 degrees uh, for four, or, yeah, four hours. Um, so it, it was pretty severe. Uh, if crops were uh, emerged, um, they, they had se- severe burn. However, we didn't have many crops emerged up here in the north. Uh, it more what was more affected would have been those those uh, crops that were planted there the eighth, the seventh, and the sixth of May, and and it really showed in the in the yield data as it came through just a significant reduction um, I mean yield as on average, uh, but but a stand as well. So a lot of ambitional chilling there. The other thing you know that that I think really hurt us in Northeast Indiana was. Uh, that, that following week, uh, basically May 15th through 18th, uh, depending on where you were in, in northeast Indiana, you know, we got anywhere from three to six inches of rainfall in, in four days. Uh, so, you know, it, a lot of corn had been emerged there, but also a lot of corn um, just got planted before, before that because they shut down for that freeze window as suggested, uh, and then they just they got crusted in. Um, and allowed a lot of uh, seedling diseases to come in, such as Pythium and so forth, that, that really limited stand even more than what the, the freeze did. Um, so two really tough event, events that happened in May um, that, that kind of followed all the way through to harvest, um, and, and we could identify those, those fields and, and those planting dates uh, at the end of the season. I might be a little bit of the odd person out here. I, the territory that I cover just south of Lance, we actually, if you look at how your results turned out, some of the things that you guys have talked about, um, not to say they were non-events, but they did not have the impact that I expected. The frost that Lance spoke about, we had some isolated fields and had to do a little bit of replant on some early planted soybeans, but corn was while it looked ugly, was essentially not affected. Uh, My dry time came uh, really probably in August and early September that probably impacted us. The big noticeable thing for us uh, was really probably the impact that that drought had on kernel depth and a number of our hybrids. Uh, But when I look at yield levels for the geography that I cover, um, there's actually, I mean, I hate to say this, but Lance and I've spoke about this. There are some locations just 50 or 60 miles south of where Lance's southern edge is that there's a hundred bushel difference between the yield level Lance saw in his most drought stricken areas and some of the really good yields that I had. Uh, the rain that Lance spoke about was certainly impactful uh, for us, and we saw some reasons in the fall uh, to make that statement but overall uh, of the four of us honestly i probably had the smoothest sailing i would say and really probably have some of the best yields that some of my customers and some of the local growers have had in a number of years i mean i've got growers that their yields this year are going to rival 18 and so i'm i'm a bit of the anomaly probably for the four of us today 
I think the Lance did a really nice job of summarizing those challenging emergence and early planting conditions that we had. Uh, that's ditto on my end in Northwest Indiana. Uh, I remember visiting with a grower who had uh, soybeans that had been in the ground for, I think it was better part of 14 days, just sitting there, not doing much. And uh, I, I asked that, that gentleman, he's, you know, 85 years old. And I said, can you remember spring that it was this slow to get a crop out of the ground? And, and he remarked that, no, this, this was um, pretty extraordinary. So, you know, those conditions that we saw, those, those cool, slow growing days uh, to get the crop out of the ground was, was certainly something to behold. But to Brian's point, um, I don't think it impacted the crop on the whole as much as we all might have expected. Uh, with that being said, though, a lot of the differences, uh, even on the top end in my area where we're talking the difference of 200 bushel corn to 220 or 240, a lot of it does go back to that stand establishment that Ben spoke to uh, right off the top. It's if I had 32,000 picket row fence stand and right next door to it, I only had 26,000 or something like that. Uh, that, that really is, is the difference maker for a lot of the corn yields I saw. Um, so I, I think, uh, yeah, well summarized by the group here. So I guess my question for all of us would be, as you said, Ben, start at the beginning. When you look back on the end of the season, what have we learned that we can use to help folks make better decisions for 2022 what is there anything we can take from it that help us make better decisions as we move forward or help folks plan well one of the things one of the things i would start with and talking about the stress that soybeans went through um, through breeding and seed treatment and other cultural practices um, we are able to shift our soybean planting window a lot earlier than we would have in the past and that that's probably why this is the worst, the worst season for, for a man that's 85 years old as, has seen as far as bean emergence because planting is a lot earlier because of all those factors. But keeping in mind the reason why we do that and the effect that that has on yield by being able to move your flowering window earlier and stretch out the flowering and seed fill duration. Um, I think that is important to keep in the, to keep in the forefront and I don't know how, how it went up you guys' way, but down here, our early bean varieties, at, yield was actually outstanding on them. And that, that, has, that has a lot to do with what happened the last two months of the growing season. Right? So as we, as we progressed further through our maturities, yield started to taper off some. But I think the first takeaway is that even, even when conditions aren't quite ideal, you know, there, is, there is value to pushing, pushing soybeans early a little bit. Yeah, something I would add to that is, um, you know, looking through the drought stresses that we had in Northeast Indiana, and, and I look across, you know, the dominant two crops uh, that we're planting, soybeans seem to fare very well through the drought areas uh, than corn. Uh, the percent reductions or the swings in yields from expected weren't as dr dramatic with soybeans as as they were with corn. Uh, so, you know, that, that just there once again shows the resilience of a soybean plant, uh, in, in my opinion. Uh, you, you know, we, we've planted them early in, in the conditions that, you know, people have said you shouldn't be planting them, um, and, and they still thrive. Don't get me wrong, I'm not promoting planting in unfit conditions, but just the resilience of soybeans in general 
I, I was much more pleased uh, with the soybean yields throughout those stressed areas uh, than corn. Uh, the percent percent reduction just just wasn't as dramatic um, as as it was with corn. Brian, to answer your question about what do we do differently for next growing season, I think what Lance just spoke to is that we're, we're able to kind of push beans a little bit in that early planting window. And that's great from the genetic standpoint that we've got beans that can adapt to those conditions. But I think that's in partnership with seed treatments. I don't think that you can go out and plant beans darn near a month earlier than we were 20, 30 years ago and put out naked beans and expect to have the yields we're talking about. So I really think that's a, that's a huge consideration. I know amongst all of us agronomists, we've been touting the ability of our beans to be planted earlier and earlier and considering a lot of folks are putting their beans in the ground at the same time or some even before their corn crop these days. Uh, I, I, I fervently believe that if you don't have that with a, with a really high powered seed treatment that uh, you can't get away with that. So when, when you're considering putting your beans out early in 2021, make sure you're asking your seed provider, what, what is coming on my treated soybeans? Because not all seed treatments are created equal. And just like our weed management discussions uh, over the past few episodes, multiple modes of action is the best way for us to attack these specific pests and pathogens. So if you've only got one mode of action against Pythium, or you've only got one mode of action against Rhizoc, you know, it's, it's critically important to make sure that you've got the best seed treatment solution to help your beans get off to the best start. Carl, I'll add to that. Uh, in, in Northeast Indiana, especially where we got, you know, six inches of rainfall in some places and cool, cool wet soils, in both corn and beans, the yield advantage and the stand advantage and just the plant health advantage of those acres that utilize Act, good actual seed treatment uh, was was notable. Um, to, to your point, you know, utilizing multiple modes of action, those fields really held on compared to those that were utilizing just a single mode of action or low rate, um, and, and it was big. Um, for instance, you know, on the corn, with, with the addition of the ethyboxin that, that we've been utilizing the past two to three years, it really paid off this year. You know, if you were planting at 32,000, you had a you had a slight reduction down to down to thirty to, to twenty eight, um, but in those areas that that were significantly or didn't have that great of seed treatments, if any seed treatment, they were they were wiped out to, to twenty six to twenty four. Uh, so I also think um, with with saying that and, and advocating for seed treatments, you know, it, it shined this year. The other thing that uh, I think in my geography is that we saw a lot more seedling blight as time progressed because we stayed so wet with six inches. Uh, you know, sure. right after the rainfall, uh, a lot of us walked those muddy fields and said, you know what, I still got a decent stand. Let's keep, let's keep going. Let's finish the year. Uh, and, and it was too late by the time we went back to reevaluate and you'd see some plants still sloughing off. And I'm talking a month later almost. And, and, and it was just, it was dramatic how long those plants, tried to last even with the infections that they had just just due to seed treatments alone. I think the common denominator between what you guys are talking about, and actually I'd say both soybeans and corn was root development this year, whether it's because of the moisture that uh, 
we talked about earlier or the excessive rains, I saw a lot of issues in my geography late uh, with yellow spots in soybeans. And initially folks thought that it was sudden death syndrome. You'd go out there and you'd investigate and you'd find that it really wasn't SDS. The symptomology was there, but you would dig in those places and you had almost no root development in the soybeans. And you could find the exact same thing in spots in cornfields. Uh, I think it's a factor of some of the challenges that we had a year ago with the planning window that we had and folks just couldn't help but put in some compaction layers and some of those kind of things. But if there's a, a common denominator for the things we're talking about, I think it's really probably root development, if we're honest with ourselves, that it impacted everything across the board and also made the drought that we had, we got into in some spots later even worse, potentially, because we just didn't have the roots there to do what we needed them to do. Uh, I'd piggyback off that, Brian. Um, when you see sudden death syndrome showing up on the top of your sand ridge, you might want to, you know, go out and double check. A lot of the beans that were given up the ghost there uh, in late August, early September, usually we see those those SDS symptoms, the yellowing of, of uh, the soybeans from just the roadside. Usually that's uh, in those compacted low-laying areas where you got that infection that takes place early on uh, in the seedling phase. So uh, I was getting a lot of calls about sudden death syndrome and it turned out that no, that wasn't the case. We, you know, lack of water, poor root development, um, it, you nailed it in those comments there. Yeah, I saw the symptomology on the sides of hills more so than I did anywhere else, and I attributed that to those were probably the wettest spots a year ago, even when we were planning those, and we saw some compaction in those areas, and I think that's what restricted a lot of the root growth in my geography, at least. So we've talked a lot about, like, the dry conditions we experienced in 2020, What's the guy supposed to do about that if you don't have irrigation? You guys have any thoughts there? I'd I'd start by, and I know I know there are no typical years, right? But I would start by asking what the what the typical weather pattern is in Indiana, or at least in your part of Indiana. And speaking from a bit of a southern perspective, we hope that sometime in late April and May we'll get a window dry enough, long enough to plant before it starts raining again. Right. And then we would expect sometime in June that rain's going to stop and we're probably not going to get any in July. And then sometime in August, it'll start raining again. Right. So the point of saying that is that this year was kind of the inverse. June was extraordinarily dry. July was wet. August and September were very dry again. So I would use I would use some degree of caution when making decisions about product performance, about product placement. Um, and about management on your farm. One of the interesting things, as, as I know you all did as well, we took a bunch of tissue samples this year. And the tissue samples that took in June, regardless of what soil fertility was, were, were absolutely awful, um, which stands to reason, right? If you don't have any rainfall, you're not going to move any nutrients into the plant. But I would, I, would just, I would just give a word of caution to learning too much from 2020, we have a colleague who likes to use the term recency bias. And I think that as you know, it's human nature for us to react to what we just came through. I think you're right, Ben. I think looking at your history, 
both of the products that you plant, but of the farms you've got and try to look holistically at that and try to understand, don't be too reactionary to what happened. Uh, you know, in a perfect world, folks would be able to go out and everybody'd have a pivot and you only turn it on when it's dry. You know, in my part of the world, that's just not feasible from a money standpoint. And you probably only turn the thing on every seven years or something probably. Uh, so I think you've got to be a little careful. I do think one of the things that we can do is we can look at hybrid and variety selection and try to spread some risk out that way, whether it's drought rating. The other thing for me is every time we get into a drought situation, especially on corn, I see the value in managing my silking date and my pollination date even more so than I do just my overall corn maturity. Because Agreed. we in our lineup, we've got a couple products that are 111 or 112 day products, but some silk earlier than 111, some silk later than 111. And I, I caution folks, especially on corn, if you've got multiple products, make sure you're balancing out that silking date because it could be possible that you could have 109, 111, and 114 day hybrid and have your silking time frame all in a couple days and, and i continued to see where when i look at lance's information about the drought he experienced and i look at the couple spots i had some dry um, conditions laid in silking date made a huge difference on how those products perform yeah and, and i would i would attest to that you know i, I ran some, some trends to see it just seemed like later mature maturing hybrids seemed to thrive this year it was hard to beat um, and so, you know, I, I ran a trend line, a linear trend line to see uh, what that R squared was and so forth. And then I thought, thought about silking date and I ran that silking and the correlation to silking date was, was much better than it was just by maturity. Um, so, so very good point there, Brian, and, and spreading out that risk. I mean, that's a lot of times, you know, in Northeast Indiana, whether it's 1197 or 720 or whatever the product may be that the customer just loves. They ask us, what, give me a reason why I shouldn't plant this to my whole farm. And, and it goes back to exactly what I experienced or my customers experienced in Northeast Indiana this year is, is risk management. Spread out that risk. Some, some hybrids are going to thrive in that environment. Some aren't. Um, two other things that I would add to your question there, comment is to your comment or geez, sorry about that. Two, two additions I would add to your question there, Carl, is um, just Looking at yield data across multiple years, um, many of us have had post-harvest meetings now with our rep forces, um, and, you know, I do not just share one year's worth of data. Uh, I share an average, so I share uh, three years of data, and, and when you look at that, you know, we're looking at two really good years in my geography and, and one really tough year, and so what you really see is hybrid stability throughout there is what products have the potential to not only thrive in a good year, but also in a tough year. What, pro what products are going to be above average across all yield levels? Um, and so that's, that's something to really look at. And, and consistency is key year in and year out. I mean, you got to pay the bills regardless of what the weather throws at you. And so you need the products that are going to perform above average at all times. Um, so looking at multiple years of data, looking at multiple geographies, uh, it's huge. The other thing that I would add uh, with, the, with the fertility background is 
potassium potassium fertility is key uh and, and drought tolerance just just native drought tolerance of hybrids and um kind of goes back to to brian's comment earlier when we we're talking about weather and, and early growth if if our roots were inhibited if we had poor root development and and we didn't get to the potassium if we had adequate potassium out there you just that you just added another stress to that crop um it, it couldn't naturally you know defend some of that that uh drought drought that was out there so you know a there's there's two things here a is, is breaking up that compaction so our roots can actually get to the potassium that's in the soil but b not cutting ourselves short uh on our fertility levels out there whether you look at soybeans or you look at corn potassium is truly the highest uptake uh in in both those those crops um so that's that's key there too is, is make sure that we're at least replenishing the potassium removals uh and fertilizing for our yield goals. One thing, Lance, you touched on that I, I want to, you know, elaborate a little bit further. Uh, your point on looking at multiple years of yield data. Uh, I truly admire the folks that, that ask, you know, their, their seed provider, give me all the trial data that you've got. You know, I want to see it all in Jasper County, or I want to see it all in, you know, what in my area, give, give, give me everything you got for this year. And then they pour through that data from all the folks they do business with, and then they, they come up with their order. You know, they say, these are the products that I want. Um, like I said, that is an admirable deal because you are taking the, you know, the information that you're provided and trying to make the best educated decision without bias uh, from the folks you're doing business with. The one thing I caution against when it comes to that is just like Ben said earlier, uh, you know, what's a typical year? And do you have that year effect bias, that recency bias when it comes to product performance? Because 2020 was a pretty droughty year and a lot of a lot of our geographies we cover. And so those drought resilient hybrids that performed really well and all of those plots, all that data that you're looking through, well, if we get adequate rainfall in 2021, I don't know if those are gonna be the hybrids that are gonna perform best on your on your acres. And so that's where it, it is a trusting relationship with your seed uh, sales representatives that they really are looking out for your best interest when they're saying, you know, yes, that product did really well in, in this plot or in this county this year, but I believe these package of products are the ones that are going to provide you that risk mitigation and then also allow them to thrive on your soils. And those those uh, thoughts are provided with the data that we as the agronomist team share with our reps because we want to make sure that they're looking at multiple years of yield data across multiple environments across a little bit of a wider geography so that we're providing those consistent stable products that you can count on year in and year out so i think that's a it's a cautionary tale when folks say i want to look at all the data in my county in 2020 and i'll tell you what i want just make sure that uh, there's a little bit more that goes behind that when it comes to product selection for your acres. So with that, I got another question for you, one that's been popping up a lot for me. Fungicides in 2020, how, how'd it go? Um, and I'm sure it could be a different, different story for everybody. I think a full transparency, we, we work uh, in the seed business. None of us get paid on on how fungicide uh, products get used or don't get used. So as agronomists, we're all here either advocating for or against fungicide use. Uh, 
given your individual situation. So that caveat aside, guys, what do you think about fungicides in 2020? I can I can start here. Um, so just like uh, the tail of the yield story throughout Northeast Indiana is the same with the fungicides. It varies. Um, depend where you were uh, and what yield levels you were at to. There was reports of uh, a good ROI, uh, return on investment, and there was reports out there that it, it didn't it didn't even nearly pay for itself. Um, the the thing that I there's a few things that I would add to that on on clarification on probably why. So, a from the standpoint of of disease out in foliar disease out in the countryside, it was pretty limited as as we look uh, through pollination at the VT typical application timing. Um, and look at what disease pressure we had. It was it was pretty minimal. Um, we had hot, dry weather, and and I won't even say it was hot, but warm and dry weather. Um, and so the the two pathogens that affect my area the most, northern corn leaf blight and tar spot, they don't thrive in that condition. Both of those thrive more in cooler, wetter conditions as we get later. Um, so that's that's a big one. We we didn't have much disease development. Uh, at the timing of application. Um, on that note of tar spot, uh, I'd just like to add, you know, if we're truly targeting tar spot and northern corn leaf blight, um, we really need to be rethinking fungicide timing. Um, we, we need to be pushing that back. Uh, in, in my geography, where gray leaf spots, uh, it's there every year. It just doesn't take as much yield, doesn't take as much top end out. Uh, as it would on those other two diseases, tar spot and northern corn leaf blight. You know, I've really been promoting pushing that fungicide back uh, to R1, R2, uh, so that we can actually have a residual out there and we have we have some control out there when those diseases come in. The problem is when we're applying that BT, you you ran out of uh, of that fungicide long before those those diseases come in. So uh, just a plug there. Uh, for those that I haven't talked to in the countryside in Northeast Indiana, um, moving that fungicide timing back is going to be key, and it's going to help us stay clean throughout Grainsville. Uh, the other thing that I would say is for those guys that did have a positive ROI, uh, I think a lot of it came down to just plant health. It wasn't it wasn't uh, disease in general. It was it was keeping that plant healthy, making that plant uh, continue to. to photosynthesized throughout the season and in my geography where the late rains finally came in it, it took advantage of it so once again it, it depends on where you were um, but if it was an advantage in northeast indiana i don't believe it was due to uh disease pathogens it was due to uh just plant health and keeping it healthier to be able to uh take advantage of some of those late rainfall events so I can expand on some of those things. We had we had some fungicide trials out this year, and um, and with some of the customers I worked with, there was a range of applications all the way from V10 to about R3. So much like much like Lance with um, Northern and Tar Spot, we we have we have to worry every year about Southern rust coming in at some point. And even if it comes in late, I mean, you can you can have an outbreak at R4 and it'll still have a significant yield impact. So, you know, the roughly eight weeks from pollinating all the way to all the way to black layer, be really cognizant of what you want to protect in that. 
right? So my, my standard, my, my baseline on fungicides, Carl, has been uh, spray every acre every year, because if you're going to play the odds, I, you're going to see a return on it. But we can do better than that as managers and as advisors and make sure that we're managing the disease that is present in the field when it is there. So yes, we're going to have great, we're going to have gray leaf spot down here every year. It's not, it doesn't move nearly as aggressively as Northern or our big risk is Southern. Right? So it, because you, because you see that in the field does not necessarily need that you need, mean that you need to go out and spray that day. Let's take into consideration the environment that we have, you know, if it's going to be dry um, and cool, gray and southern down here aren't going to move much now southern southern is something that i feel pretty strongly that if it is present you should probably be doing something to manage it um, regardless of what the environment looks like it's there is an ideal environment for it to move you know high humidity a lot of leaf moisture and 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 warm temperatures primarily if we're staying in the 80s at night down here southern is going to move quick is going to move very quick so just I would echo what, what Lance said, and, and I'm a big fan of a brown silk fungicide application, but let's make sure that we're being smart about it and managing the disease that are in the field, because we could have, we could have Southern, and we have had Southern coming in July, right? And if the, if the conditions are right for that to move, you better be managing it 100%. So this year, Southern was the biggest risk, and we, the V10 applications, there was a significant improvement in plant health and um, managing some stock disease. Stock integrity late was a lot better um, mm. and some yield effect, a marginal yield effect. But the applications that were made late, again, in 2020, were, were, significantly, were significantly better in terms of, of ROI and yield improvement than going out and spraying green tassels just because that's when you need to spray. And I understand there are some logistical challenges if you've got to schedule the plane or the helicopter to come in, but let's actually consider managing what is in the field to get, to get the best return on investment. Ben, the analogy I like to use to try to help folks understand that is for several years now, we've tried to manage fungicide application based on the timing or the growth stage of the corn. And the analogy that I make, and you guys that have children will probably recognize this and understand it. If you've got a five-year-old who gets the measles, you don't say, well, we don't typically treat the measles until you're eight. So we're gonna <laughs> wait a little bit. That, that doesn't work. You have to treat the disease when it's present. And uh, you know, if, if we're careful about fungicide labels, you can do that when it needs to be done um, to treat the disease. But I think the, just the arbitrary, I'm not treating until I get to this particular growth stage, or I only treat with fungicide at this growth stage, it's specifically on corn. Soybeans is a different animal altogether, but that's how I try to get folks to help understand what we're talking about when we talk about treating the disease when it's present. I think the other thing I'll add is you could find gray leaf spot. You could find northern corn leaf blight. Uh, even in my geography, what is, which is traditionally not tar spot, we could find tar spot. We had some southern rust show up in my geography late, Ben. It was low levels, but it was there. The thing that I noticed and part of the reason why we got our money back, I think, on fungicides in my geography but we would get an environment that was conducive to northern corn leaf blight for a couple days. And then 
then it would completely change and then it would be northern corn leaf or excuse me gray leaf spot and then it would completely change and it would go back we never had a sustained period long enough for any of those diseases to take off and while there was i think a benefit to things beyond yield that you spoke about ben that are important that make a guy money whether it's harvestability or it's some of those kind of things there, there's a benefit to fungicide sometimes beyond just the yield number that comes across the scales or across the yield monitor. I think we saw that this year, but I, fungicides, uh, timing is the most important thing for fungicides to be successful. I think you guys did an excellent job summarizing everything with respect to fungicides in 2020. The only couple things that I'll have to add with a little local flavor is uh, totally in alignment with the standability uh, comment. If anything, this year where I saw fungicides applied, we saw better standability. And I think part of that comes back to Lance's earlier comment on, on potassium. Anything that we were able to do to mitigate the stress that drought brought on for a lot of these corn plants, um, you know, if it's the fungicide that's, that's helping to limit some of that, that respiration in the evening time to preserve that photosynthate that we've got coming into the plant during the day, uh, that's, that helps an awful lot when it comes to end of season standability. Um, the other thing that I would consider is, uh, what was your more yield limiting factor? Was it that, that dry spell that we had during grain fill or was it the diseases that moved in later, um, you know, after that traditional tassel application, you know, more towards that brown silk or even milk stage is when I started to see more diseases showing up. And so if you've got the drought that was your greatest limiting factor, well, that fungicide when uh, Carl, Lance, Brian, Ben, whomever says, hey, I'm telling you, a fungicide application is going to help us pack some more into those kernels, give us some more kernel depth, and that's where you're going to see the yield bump. Well, if we don't have the water to, you know, be able to feed that, that end of grain fill period to get those kernels to really pop, then, uh, then it's not going to be fungicide that's going to, you know, be what's paying the bills for you this year. Uh, it would have been the water that would have. So uh, just a couple things to consider. And then I think I've said this in a previous episode, but with respect to tar spot, Lance and Brian Early have kind of been harboring it uh, for, for the state of Indiana, but it has, it has and it continues to move south and west of their of their locales and uh, I saw it in places this year that I've never seen it before and it's not as if we had great tar spot weather so just be cognizant of that when you're making your decisions on uh, hybrid selection for next growing season and management considerations when you rotate back to corn uh, definitely visit with uh, either your sales representative or agronomist or you know individual you work with on chemicals there. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a, a plug, Carl, that if you have not battled tar spot or southern rust, given that this year I think we saw a little bit of an expanded range, tar spot certainly, um, this is the first year that I've found it on green plants south of I-70 in the state. Um, you can back up. We have a couple of really good episodes earlier on in this series with, with our fellow agronomists taking a deep dive into both those topics. So, if you need a refresher or if you've not experienced them much at all, I would encourage you, highly encourage you to scroll back and, and give those a listen. One addition I would add to the tar spot is, uh, you know, we, we continue to see it spread. Um, 
And in northern Indiana, you know, we, we typically don't get southern rest. We don't get that pandemic uh, disease other than the northern corn leaf blight, which is pretty bad. I mean, we're just – if we're going to rank them, right? Um, but uh, tar spots really is continuing to progress. Although, you know, in, in our geographies, they didn't really come into R4, R5 this year. Uh, so it really wasn't a, a yield determinant. Uh, I'm sure it affected – elsewhere because of the environment or the conditions that were just right. Um, and, and to think, you know, it's, it's spread across the Midwest pretty good now. Um, and it's actually even moved further north, uh, I think, in 2020, all the way into Canada, uh, Alberta, Canada, I believe. And so this, this disease continues to spread. Uh, the inoculum is going to be out there. Uh, there's several management uh, suggestions we can give, you know, such as tillage and, and minimizing the the residue, um, you know, utilizing fungicides um, and so forth. But but the big thing is going to be what's the environment like, and is it going to be an issue year in and year out? And are we ready to pull the trigger when the environment is conducive to the disease? Just like southern in southern Indiana. Well said, Lance. Um, guys, I know we're getting on a little bit in terms of the duration of this episode. Uh, obviously, we could talk all day about what happened in 2020, but while we still have Lance as our, uh, as our esteemed guest uh, today, Lance, is there anything that we haven't had a chance to touch on that really had an impact on, uh, on yields for Northeast Indiana? No, I, I, think, I think Brian said it best. Uh, early on in the segment and, and you know what what the drought really caused and and the biggest thing was uh curl depth right so we talked about early on on how when you started thinking about the three components to yield right you got number of years uh what's the way to what's the way to kernels and then number of kernels total right and so a, you know, in, in Northeast Indiana, where we did have drought environments, and don't get me wrong, Northeast Indiana was, wasn't horrific. We had areas that uh, were average to above average, and then we had areas that you might as well, you, when you were harvesting, you might have thought you were harvesting soybeans, uh, sub 100 bushels and so forth, and, and it's not throwing anybody under the bus, it's, it's the cards that we were dealt this year. But looking at the three components, the yield data, uh, or yields, you know, the stands key. So we talked about that. And in those areas, they were reduced. Were they reduced by uh, the frost or, uh, or the heavy rainfalls, seedling blight? They were reduced. So, so there's, you know, we're starting to pull out some yield potential. And then we start looking at number of kernels. As we moved into July and August, we started seeing tip back kernel abortion. Uh, you know, the plant decided that it didn't have the nutrients or the reserves to punish all those kernels. So we really saw kernel abortion. Uh, so that reduces the number of kernels. And then finally was just that, that grain fill. How long was our grain fill window? How deep are those kernels? What's the weight of those kernels? And, and that drought continued uh, throughout those environments. I think some of my geography, some of the uh, farmers that are listening are probably saying that the drought index maps aren't accurate enough. Um, doesn't doesn't take into scope of the, uh, a large enough geography. They don't got enough uh, um, data sets out there to to incorporate their areas. Um, but realistically, in 2020, all three of those components of yield uh, were affected in Northeast Indiana, uh, which which led to to the effects that we had of of poor 
for yields in those really tough environments. I would I would add, Lance, that and and this is this is not something that we can completely unpack today, but but hybrids make yield in different ways, right? I mean, we've mentioned ear flex. There are some hybrids that want to want to add kernel rows or they want to add kernel length, or some hybrids are more prone to tipping back. One thing that one thing that did stand out this year, and we can unpack this more in a later episode, was that if you have a hybrid that was that its primary yield component is kernel depth or kernel weight, that being that it doesn't flex much in kernel row or kernel number altogether, those hybrids tended to take the the drought this year much harder, which makes sense, right? Because the last thirty days of grain fill are going to be pretty important for those those products and adding kernel depth. So again, keep in mind the year effect. And we, you know, we kind of, we kind of touched on this with corn and everything. Um, circling back to the, to spreading risk, plant, plant a range of soybean varieties um, as far as maturities go. Um, this year, like I said, this year in Southern Indiana, um, the early varieties did very well. That is typically not the case. And some of our some of our fuller season group four beans that have been phenomenal for the past two years i mean they they took it on the chin a little bit so so like we mentioned with corn make sure you're spreading your risk out across maturities guys i think this was a really good uh episode in terms of that post-mortem analysis uh that we wanted to do on 2020 uh I think this is maybe a good spot for us to put a pin in it. And we've got a couple other topics we could uh, pick back up with uh, respect to Ben talking about how different hybrids make yield. Um, that could be an excellent topic for us to delve into in a future, future podcast. So I think that uh, we'll go ahead and stop things here. Um, with that, obviously we want to thank all of you for listening with us throughout um, the entire growing season. Hopefully we brought you valuable content to make uh, educated decisions in real time. This winter, we're definitely going to continue the podcast, but more in this fashion, a little bit of a look back, a little bit of a look forward. And obviously we appreciate any feedback from you all as listeners to help guide what it is that you want to hear uh, when it comes, uh, comes from your pioneer agronomy team. So uh Folks, definitely thank you for, for staying with us all season long. And um, if there is a good way for you to uh, give us that feedback, it's usually going to be on the various social media communication channels. So, um, Ben, maybe you start us off. How can folks get a hold of you to provide some feedback? Yeah, certainly. You can find you can find me on, on the Twitter at, at the Ben Jacob or on Facebook at Ben Jacob Agronomy. Good deal. How about you, Lance? Any uh, any idea in terms of best way for folks to follow up with you if anything that you said today piqued their interest? Yeah, you can always get a hold of me by email or phone. Uh, uh, Lance.shepherd at pioneer.com uh, is email. Uh, and then I do have a Twitter feed um, that I don't utilize a lot, but I'll be sure to check it. It uh, looks like my Twitter handle is at agronomistchef. Agronomist underscore chef. Very good. And how about you, Brian? Uh, on the Twitter machine, you can get me at BK Schrader. And then we're trying something new, Carl. 
uh, Instagram, B under slash K under slash Schrader. And uh, folks who like try it. to get me there, we'll try that for a while. Okay, we'll find uh, find Brian on the gram there. And uh, folks, if you want to follow along with me in Northwest Indiana on Twitter, that would be at Cjorn. So uh, everyone, thanks thanks again for uh, staying with us all season long. Certainly enjoyed uh, this this podcast in uh, a different way of, of bringing you uh, timely insights uh, from the field straight to your phone. So uh, thank you again as always and. Uh, be safe this season um, as you're getting through field work and you're preparing to get together with uh, family and friends uh, across the holidays. However it is that you all are getting together, uh, just know we're all, all thinking of you and we're here to support you and, and your operations. So with that, we'll, uh, we'll catch you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Pioneer Agronomy Team. Be sure to visit pioneer.com backslash podcasts to access additional episodes and learn more about our extensive on-farm data and innovative digital tools that are fueling forward-thinking farming.